0: we begin, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Over the last several months together, we've been looking at the virtue of patience, and how patience relates to the life of the church, the life of this church plant, and planting a church, and the way that it transforms our hearts. If you missed it, we have those all online as well that you can listen to. The series ended two weeks ago. And now we're going to be spending some time in what's called the Old Testament lectionary until July 4th, and then we'll spend some time in Ephesians together for the rest of the summer. If you're not familiar with the lectionary, it's this three-year calendar cycle of readings of Scripture that the church follows, and it allows us to hear from different writers in the Scripture. We believe that the Holy Spirit changes people's hearts through the hearing of the Word. And so the lectionary allows us to not just hear the individual authors, but it allows us to hear the divine author as those things are put in place in the context of our worship. And so last week, Father Ryan was in Genesis chapter 3, and and he led us through that. And he talked about our desire for autonomy uh, from the Creator, He gave us a helpful reminder to come to Jesus uh, in our shame, and in our fear, where we find grace. It was a great homily. I encourage you to listen to it if you missed it. And um, today we're going to be looking at a passage that, you know, is equally familiar as Genesis 3. Just kidding. Uh, It's in Ezekiel chapter 31. And so that might be less familiar to you than Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Last week we saw humanity, who was in the garden of God, They were living in autonomy, and then they were expelled from the garden. Today, we see somebody who's compared to the highest tree in the Garden of Eden. Their pride that we find today is an extension of the kind of autonomy that we see in Genesis chapter 3. But I think it's helpful as we kind of enter into the book of Ezekiel together. Where are we at in history? I'm going to backtrack a little bit so you can kind of get a sense of where this prophecy is coming from. So, after God establishes the covenant people of Israel in the land, and he virtually expels all their enemies from the land, the kingdom went through this long history of alternation between faithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to God. And the nation had split in half after King Solomon and then his son Rehoboam had acted kind of like tyrants. They overtaxed people. They almost had forced slave labor of half the kingdom. And so, you end up with a split in the kingdom. Both the north and the south, they failed to uphold God's um, a covenant with them. In their worship, they were perverting justice. They were worshipping the right God the wrong way, or they were worshipping the wrong gods. Um, and they took advantage of the poor and the marginalized. So we see this in both the north and the south. Their unfaithfulness comes to a head in the north in 722 BC. King Shalmaneser V, the king of Assyria, he conquers the northern capital of Samaria, and uh, and then he scatters that northern kingdom throughout the empire. They intermarry, they lose their sense of identity. If we were to look at a map of Assyria and its height uh, of power, what we would see is that they reigned over what's called the Fertile Crescent. Uh, they were stretching all the way from the Persian Gulf. Through Iraq today, through southeastern Turkey, northern Syria, all the way through Lebanon, down along the coast of Israel, all the way to Alexandria, Egypt, that, that delta there. And so that's a huge area to be reigning over. So when and as powerful as they had become as, a, as an empire, that was about to unravel in just 100 years. The, the Medes and the Babylonians were going to rise up from the east and drive the Assyrians out of being in rule of Babylonia and Assur and Nineveh. And then the king of Egypt, the king of Egypt, who's the focus today, he had a special relationship with Assyria, because Assyria acted as this buffer between them and the Babylonians and the Medes. And in the aftermath of Assyria's fall, Egypt, from the west, and Babylon from the east would be the two major superpowers that we're trying to control or more to control the Fertile Crescent. Why does all that history matter, you might ask? Um, it doesn't take long for Babylon, who comes into power, to begin knocking on the door of the southern kingdom of Judah. This north is already gone, and this is the time period where we get the prophecies of First Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah. We hear Jeremiah constantly telling the people... Do not flee to Egypt, right? Don't trust in Egypt. So that's during this time period. God had told the people that they disobeyed the covenant, that they would be brought into exile. But the experience of being in Babylon would be a refinement process for God would bring a remnant back to faithfulness and bring them back to the land of promise. So Egypt, Egypt still remained a temptation for them. It was a temptation that was fitting well with the idolatry that had caused the problem in the first place. It was misplaced trust. Trusting in Egypt, if you think about our sermon last week, trusting in Egypt was really a kind of autonomy that was was like the fruit of the tree. It was this willful distrust of God's word that he had given to them in his promise, and trading it for what seems more easy and more palatable. Excuse me. So Ezekiel has written this very lengthy book. It's written during the exile, when God's people have been taken and placed into exile in Babylon and carted off into a very foreign land from home. And in Ezekiel chapter 29 through 31, we have three chapters that are devoted to prophecy against Egypt and against Pharaoh. The main reason for the condemnation of Egypt and Pharaoh is the role that they're trying to play in the salvation of Israel. Chapter 31, which was our Old Testament reading this morning, says it begins in the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day. And that would have been June 21st, 587 BCE. So, think, around this time period, but 600 years before Jesus. Um, And Ezekiel is delivering this prophecy to Pharaoh... Pharaoh, who has surrounded himself with an entourage, this entourage, not only people, but wealth and other symbols of of status, are showing how important Pharaoh is. It's it's somehow visible. The prophecy that Ezekiel gives about Pharaoh, it presents this bleak picture for the hope that people have when they rely on something or someone other than God himself pride is misplaced. It's a misplaced trust, and it often is the extension of the autonomy that Father Ryan spoke about last week. And I think this passage challenges us to trust in the Lord, and to not trust in our own successes, so that we're nourished and we're sustained by the Lord himself. So, while Ezekiel's prophecy to Pharaoh, uh, speaks to Pharaoh, I think it also speaks to to those who are tempted to trust Pharaoh, you know, insert the Israelites who are in exile uh, or fearing exile, it, it speaks to those who are in temptation of wanting something else. The grass is greener on the other side. And, and so pride is such a difficult sin. It, this passage is all about pride. It's so difficult to detect. It requires us to be constantly vigilant. I was remembering in, in the last couple months, we went to North Carolina with some friends, we got to ride on their boats, and we were constantly checking the depth of the water as we were going along, uh, and, and the reason why we were doing that is so we wouldn't run aground. But if we just decided to skip the checking of the, of the ground beneath us, and just go tear-free, hog-wild, and go after it, we would surely run aground, hit a sandbar, uh, or some, some shallow spot that was just hidden below the surface. And I think pride always lurks just below the surface of most things that we do. So it requires these constant checks on our hearts to make sure that we don't run aground or shipwreck the good things that, that God's doing and that we're doing by His grace for His glory. So Ezekiel asks Pharaoh a question. He says, Whom is His greatness like? Talking about Pharaoh, the most obvious and favorable choice to compare Egypt's glory to would be Assyria. I mean, when you think of the archetypical empire of wealth and prominence, we think of Assyria. Assyria's fall is within the lifetime of these exiles. So they're remembering this. So already the frame is a prophecy that anticipates Egypt's downfall. Assyria is compared with this beautiful tree. And out here we see lots of beautiful trees. So you can kind of imagine this. So Egypt is, a, is compared to this beautiful tree, uh, Assyria is, where you can't see the top. So imagine standing at the bottom and you're looking up and all you can see is the tree going up, but then you see the clouds. Its top is in the clouds. And not only is it tall, it stretches so far out that the birds are making nests in its shade, that the animals are coming under it for safety. The beauty of the tree, it says, makes the garden, the, the trees that are in the garden of Eden envies. It's that beautiful. So what made this tree grow so great? It wasn't actually anything the tree did. That would be foolish, right? But what made this tree grow so great, besides the nutrients of the soil, was the streams nearby that were feeding these subterranean waters that strengthened the roots of the tree. Assyria had become this massive empire that Egypt, among other people, were coming to for safety. They wanted defense, they were making peace treaties. They depended on Assyria. So we should pay attention, I think, to the places that we turn to for help. That could be a substance, or a person, or a show, a healthy behavior, an unhealthy behavior. There's lots of things that we might run to for help. But is it the Lord that we turn to is the question this text is asking, or is it something that we feel like we can actually manage or control? I don't know about you, but um, noticing those things that we do or feel when we feel out of control can be really helpful. I noticed for myself... Uh, I get really, I, I start breathing deeply. So I notice a lot of stress. I kind of go, right? And I notice that about myself now. Maybe you have other things like that. And when my body does that, it's a reminder to me to stop, to pray with the psalmist. Lord, make haste to help me. Lord, make speed to save us. Lord, make haste to help us. You know, just to stop and pray. But the Israelites, they were called here not to go to Egypt for help, which was their temptation. So in verse 10, in this parable, everything changes. The whole thing gets upended. Up to this point, everything is beautiful. It's idyllic. Mm-hmm. You can't tell that anything is negative about this tree. But the tree, we find out, is characterized by arrogance and hubris. It doesn't recognize why it's grown, but instead it thinks that it itself was responsible for its own flourishing. So there's this devastating scene that we find where God just allows these lumberjacks to come in, start cutting down the tree, have at it. And as they chop up the tree, they chop off all the limbs. And all you can see anymore is just tree parts and limbs scattered throughout valleys and ravines nearby. Nothing left of the tree. Its former glory only exists in the nostalgia of the minds of those now vulnerable nations who used to look after it for its protection. Assyria had trusted in its own success to keep going, but without recognizing that the Lord was the one that was giving it growth through the subterranean waters, and it fell, and, and its fall was proportionately great as its success was. So, I think there's some helpful reminders for us here. External successes can be a deceptive measure of faithfulness for a few reasons. If we examine our accomplishments, the things that go really well, and we start to use that as a standard and a measure of God's will, we can be tempted to define God's will and the things that He loves through the things that seem to work. So, here's what I mean. It's entirely possible, I think, for someone to come to church, uh, to volunteer, uh, and yet not be formed as a disciple of Jesus. Right? That's just an outward, uh, things are going well, they look well on the outside, perhaps at home they're set off by small things, perhaps maybe they're not characterized by love by the people who know them, they speak ill frequently of other people, their co-workers, They're not growing in love with the things that God loves. But on the outside, they look fine. And I think here, they use the things of God to hide from God himself. The external faithfulness is actually a source of pride. I'm okay. Look at how well I'm doing. And it keeps them from real transformation. That's one one kind of example. On the other hand, we can look at external failures, and we can submit ourselves unnecessarily to shame. Because we assumed that it was up to our success, uh, it was up to us to succeed or fail at something. And that, I was thinking back actually, I'm going to get vulnerable. So I was thinking back to the last year and a half as we were planting, and thinking back to the worship services that we've done. Uh, There are some days where a lot of people come, and then there are some days where no people come. And you guys would never know when no people come because you weren't there. You know, so. but uh, you know, thinking back, I've, I've definitely had at least one virtual online where I was the only one praying, uh, along with the myriads of angels and saints. Uh, but and then I was thinking back to Ash Wednesday this year in the evening, and we actually began the service, and and there were there were three people there: Father Ryan who was preaching, me, and Andrew who was leading music. And, uh, and uh, man, just thinking back to that, I really had to reckon in my own heart about what success or failure looked like that day. Um, there were a few people who came partway through the service, but I was wrestling with God about success and, and how to define that. It was like God was telling me, hey, Morgan, would you worship me if, if no one else came? Like, would you do that? Would you worship with the saints if no one else came? There's actually things that you have in this that you need to prepare for Lent, that this now affords you that you wouldn't have had other bodies. So, was it a good service? Uh, I had to wrestle with that, and I think I, think I can say it was a good service. And, and here's why. I handed something over to God in that experience. Right? That taught me a lot. And that, I think, is a, is a better definition of success. Giving of ourselves more deeply to God's will. It's not a common definition of success when we think of church planting, a worship service, or discipleship. But it's one that reminds us of the life that we have in Christ. And so I think perhaps there's a, a healthy amount of skepticism that we should cultivate about our successes and our failures, or the things that we perceive as success and failure. In that skepticism, let's begin to ask Why something felt like a success, or why did it feel like a failure? Don't just take it on face value as, that went well, that didn't go well. That's not a fruitful fruitful way to think and frame these things. So, when we think about that, as as, take it one step back, it's a deeper chance to learn from God. Ask, as we go through things, how is the grace of God shown in that? So by doing that, we start to avoid two extremes, both of which stem from pride. The first of them is self-pity. The second is self-promotion. Right, there's two extremes that come from pride. We avoid them both when we ask for God's grace is. We avoid self-pity. We avoid self-promotion. Egypt had no skepticism about its own successes. Uh, and it, instead, it trusted in its successes for continued life and vitality. In verse 14, we get to the end of this section, the prophet gives us the so what. Why does this matter? And he says, All this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to tower in height or set their tops among the clouds, that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height. It's a warning against anybody who wants to misplace their trust. Specifically, for those who would want to place their trust in earthly empire, in Egypt. So we trust in the Lord. We don't trust in our successes. And for that matter, we also can't allow things that seem like failures to become the arbiter for what we define as obedience to the Lord, or what we define as God's will. So here are some ways that I think we can do this practically. If we look, uh, at first, I want to suggest that we we take on the mind of Christ. Take on the mind of Christ. St. Paul talks in Philippians 2 about this. And one aspect of this is learning to take the lowest seat, letting God move you up. Don't do it yourself. Don't move yourself up. Uh, He says in 2 Corinthians 10, 18, he says, For it is not the one who commends himself that is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Second, we should approach our work and our words with thoughtfulness and with caution. Again, back to our illustration of checking the depths along the way. Watch your words and your work. Approach them with thoughtfulness and caution. James talks about that. He says, be swift to listen, slow to speak. Third, we have to ask, how is God bringing growth in what we do and in what we say? And I think that gets us away from the question of, was that good or was that bad? Was that a success or was that a failure? How is God coming to us in this How is God bringing growth in this? And that's precisely what Pharaoh forgot to do. To acknowledge that growth stemmed from the waters. By asking how God is bearing fruit, we acknowledge to ourselves that we are not the cause of growth. We have to be on constant guard for things that are going to threaten the fruit that God is producing in and through us. If we find ourselves making excuses for our failures or desiring other people's pity, let's come to God in those places, and let's ask Him to redefine the pain or the sorrow that we're feeling, to recast it in light of His love. If we find that most of our speech concerns the things that we've accomplished, let's ask God, why do we feel the need to prove ourselves in this situation? I mean, I remember having conversations like this where I spent a long time talking at somebody and I finished the conversation going, I never asked them a question. It's a terrible feeling. I felt super convicted. And it's exactly this kind of thing. Why did I feel the need to tell them everything about what I'm doing without asking questions about what God's doing in them? The good news, my friends, is that the Holy Spirit is working in us, He's in us who are following Christ, and each day is new. Uh, each day is built in with these with these momentary conversions that we can come back to the Holy Spirit for His help. Ask for God's help frequently. Uh, and then look for God's fruit in your labor and and your in your words and do it attentively. We have to trust in the Lord. We don't want to trust in our successes. So that we grow into a life that's fed and sustained by the Lord. Let me pray for us as we close. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest, we shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be our strength. By the light of your Spirit, lift us, we pray, to your presence. For we may be still and know that you are God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.